Welcome to Week in Review, where we recap events and issues pertinent to Central Illinois. I'm WMBD News Director Will Stevenson. This past week has been National Public Safety Telecommunicators Week across the country. In Peoria, that means saluting the 20 local 911 telecommunicators or dispatchers who often work long hours and have to help people through some of the worst situations. But in talking with Peoria Emergency Communications Center Director Brandon Blaney, his staff is some of the best. Blaney talked with reporters a couple of days ago. So we dispatch for seven law enforcement agencies. 12 fire departments, and we do three ambulance services. Uh, For those 22 agencies that we serve, we dispatch a total of 226,178 calls for service last year. Um, In 2022, we also answered a total of 303,412 emergency and non-emergency calls. So Peoria's had dispatch services since the 50s. Uh, In those last seven decades, there have been technological changes that we have, uh, you know, gone through with. Uh, But the main objective of our telecommunicators has stayed the same, and that's to serve and protect both the residents of the Peoria area as well as the first responders. We like to say we're Peoria's first first responders. We're the calm voice in the darkness. We never know what will be on the other end of that phone when we pick it up, but what we do know is the person will be in distress. Most often the caller is in a panic, and many times it is the worst moment of their life. It's our duty to stay calm under pressure so we can gather the necessary information and disseminate it in a clear and concise manner to our other first responders. Uh, So what we'll do now is kind of give you an overview of some of the systems that we use. Uh, So over here on the left, uh, this is our phone system. Um, This is the mapping system that the phone uses. So anytime someone calls 911 and we have an active call up there now, um, we get a little phone icon that pops up and then that'll show up on the map to where that person is uh, in the first few seconds of picking up the call. And that's for any cell phone call that comes in. Um, If you hover over that, it'll actually tell us the approximate address of the the caller's location. So the system here is our radio system, so we're on a digital system. Um, It's a system that many of the other agencies in the area are starting to come on as well, but we were the first in the area to come on this system. Uh, We do have access to... Uh, these are the IDOT cameras that a lot of times um, I think the news shows and um, you can see on IDOT's website, but we have access to those as well and we can actually move them around. So if we get a call of an accident or some other type of situation that's happening, we're able to zoom in on that, move those cameras around so that we can try to get a little bit more information than maybe we were able to get from the caller. Um, one of the things that we also do here in Peoria County is uh, we have access to Rapid SOS system, which is a um, system that uh, the Peoria County Emergency Telephone System Board pays for that allows us to get Uh, the most accurate data possible from those cell phone calls when they come in. And that is actually auto-populated into the phone system, but then there is a separate uh, standalone system on a web version that we can look at. So if we're on a call here, another dispatcher in the room can actually see the call that will populate and they can pull it up and it will follow that call. And it will follow that call for up to five minutes after they've disconnected even. So if someone does disconnect but we know they're in an emergency, we can see where they're going if they're on foot, uh, if they're in a car, or uh, if they're stationary, they'll give us that location. What's been the biggest advance that, that you've had in this time? Is it that ability to sort of zero in on specifically where a call's coming from? Absolutely, it's the location services. Um, so when I first started, majority of our calls were landline phones because everyone had a phone and not everybody had a cell phone. And now, uh, lion's share of the calls are all from cell phones. So initially it took uh, maybe 20, 30 seconds for us to get that data to get that location, and it wasn't, um, 
super accurate, uh, would populate it on the screen and maybe put a, a, a radius up and say somewhere in this area. Now, um, just as you get if you have, like where you're looking on Find My iPhone or something like that, we get that same exact data that is an exact location that will pop up on there and give us the address of where that is. Um, one of the things that we're working on, uh, so Peoria County was the second county in the state of Illinois to come on the new uh, NextGen 911 system. What that system is going to allow us to do is to not only get the, the X and Y coordinates, the latitude and longitude, but we're going to get the Z coordinates, which is the vertical. So say we're going to call from um, one of our high-rise buildings here, such as Glenoak Towers, and uh, someone's calling about an emergency and they're in a stairwell and they might not know where they are, we would be able to tell which floor they were on once that data is delivered to us. So that's still in the works. That's still something that we're, we're working on. But that was one of the advantages of going to this system is to have the ability to get that information. So uh, how precise is that? Is it like within so many feet or? It is within about five meters. Wow. Yeah, it's very, very accurate. And you can even see, um, let me click on that. You can even see it'll, it'll move. And as every, I think it's every 30 seconds, it will continually move and will show if, they're, um, if the person is moving. Um, one of the other things that we uh, have kind of partnered with them on is something that's called What Three Words. Uh, so that's, it's kind of cool technology. Uh, we saw that at one of our conferences last year. Uh, there's a group that basically took the entire globe, mapped the entire thing out, and every five meter square has a separate set of three English words, depending on the order and the words, will tell you where that is. So that actually comes in on the screen, and so if we were to pop that information into the What Three Words website, it would show us that same location as well. That's not as advantageous, I would say, in, in an urban setting like this, but if somebody was out in a rural setting and say they're in a field or out in a park, we would be able to pinpoint exactly the location of where they are within that area. So um, we've actually been doing text 911 since 2016 here in Peoria. Um, we are also, uh, to my knowledge, the first county that is able to receive uh, pre-recorded video and photo messages as well via text. So if someone is out and they see an accident and they took a picture of it, we obviously don't want them doing that while they're driving, but if they were to pull over, they can submit that to the dispatcher and the dispatcher can send that out to the responding, uh, both uh, police, fire, and EMS. I know Taswell just adopted that within the last year too. Uh, is the dispatch center here kind of a leader in the area as far as these technological advances go? Absolutely. We consider ourselves a leader in the state and even in the nation with some of that stuff. Well, uh, the next thing that we're working on is real-time text. Um, that's going to be huge for our um, speaking and hearing impaired community. Um, I know that's kind of been a big thing with um, some of the latest iOS and, and Android updates so that they can see that text coming back and forth and see when that that has updated, so we're working with the cell companies now to get that going. And oh, we will, to my knowledge, be the first in the state and one of the first in the nation to be delivered that. So, How much of what is responded to is generated by text or things like that? Right now, I mean, we've put out uh, information uh, to the public just about text being available. Um, we don't get that many still. Um, and we try to, every once in a while, you know, get that out to the public just to remind everybody that, you know, call if you can, text if you can't. Um, and the text can be a great tool if you're in a situation where it is hard to make a phone call or you don't want to maybe alert the person that you need to call about that you are contacting authorities. So, uh, but it's, it's, it's very low right now as far as percentage-wise to the actual 911 calls we receive. 
So obviously this is the week where we celebrate the people who are here. So kind of in general, what can the general public do to make life easier, as easy as possible for the dispatchers who work here every day? Yeah, one of the things we try to do when we get out in the community and when I speak at schools or, or, or functions, um, just kind of educate on when to call 911 and when not to. So obviously if you're in an emergency, uh, medical related, fire related, or, or in need of law enforcement, and it is an, an, a situation that's going on right now, we want you to call 911. But if it is it, not something that, that is going on right now, if it's a, you know, a dog that's loose, uh, an accident where it's maybe happened in a parking lot or it, it doesn't look like anyone's injured, situations like that, you can call our non-emergency line. You're still going to get a dispatcher right away. You're, gonna, you're not going to go through a prompt. Uh, we are still, uh, to my knowledge, the only county this size and one of the only left in the state that when you call the non-emergency, Peoria Police, Peoria County Sheriff's Office, any of the agencies that we serve, you get a live person right away. It's unbelievably stressful, especially since the level of severity of those calls fluctuates so much. How do the dispatchers keep themselves calm and composed in order to help the person on the other end of that? Yes, yeah, so we offer, um, you know, one of the things we have is like a quiet room. Um, and I'll yeah, definitely be able to show that to you all. But So that gives them an opportunity if they have that call that they just feel like they need a moment, they can go in, they can shut the door. Um, there's a TV in there, there's a phone in there if they want to make a phone call or just take that moment to relax. It's, um, you know, obviously out of view from everybody, but you can still sit in there and, and just take a breath. And, uh, you know, if you need to call somebody just to kind of hear another voice, whether it's your family or somebody, you can do all that. Um, a lot of them they like to get out and walk, and they got walk walk outside around the building, especially when it's nice like that. Um, taking that, that moment to step away from it when you have that is the best way that you can to help keep yourself stress-free. Talk about your staff. How many do you have? How many do you need? And, and how good they are? I will contend with any other director that we have the best staff in the nation. Uh, they're great. Uh, we currently have uh, 20 dispatchers. Um, we are still, uh, we're 10 short right now. So it's definitely a, a huge gap that we have right now from where our full staffing is. And that's something that we've been working on for a while. Um, it's it's uh, a good opportunity for someone that is looking for working with technology. Obviously, you can see. Uh, it's one of those setups, you know, we have all these monitors, all this, this cool stuff that you get to work with. Uh, if you like to help people, um, we're also, we're adjacent to those other first responders. So say, you know, you grew up wanting to be a police officer and a fireman and, and then maybe you decide, you know what, I don't know that being out in the public and doing that is right for me. You're still working with them and you're still working with the public, just not in that face-to-face -face manner. More with Peoria Emergency Communications Center Director Brandon Blaney on Week in Review coming up. More of a conversation reporters, including myself, had recently with Peoria Emergency Communications Center Director Brandon Blaney on the occasion of National Public Safety Telecommunicators Week. I asked Blaney about what kind of person it takes to be a 911 dispatcher or telecommunicator. You know, you have to obviously be able to, to manage your stress pretty well. Um, you have to be able to um, be, be a person that can... Um, deal with um, not only a, um, an irate caller, but, but somebody in those stressful situations. You have to be able to tell yourself, look, I, I, I understand this isn't not necessarily directed towards me. This is about that situation. Put that aside and gather that information as, as quickly and completely as you can and get that out as, as, as quick as you can as well. So. Does it take time to get to be able to that level, or are most dispatchers able to kind of get there right away? I would say, so most of our folks come without um, 
little to no uh, background in this industry. And we do get a couple that come from other agencies, but um, it's just having that ability to multitask and having that ability to type a little bit. Um, we only require a high school diploma. We do all the training here. So we, we do all the certifications. We pay for all that. We do all the job training here. Um, but it can take up to two years to be fully trained. So. You kind of just have to be patient. You do, absolutely, like absolutely. You know, we start off, it's about a four or five week process when you first start just to get you to take the 911 calls because that's a, that's a huge thing to be able to answer that and get that information and get what you need from that person to keep the fire or the police officer safe. Um, what's shift structure like? What, what are the shifts we're looking at? So right now we have three shifts. Uh, first shift is 6 a.m. to 2 p.m. Second shift is 2 p.m. to 10 p.m. And then third shift is 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. And it's, uh, you know, always two consecutive days off. I would say almost everything that we work with is the best that you can get, and there's nothing we can do. Um, the only thing that we're working on now is our CAD system, which is the computer-aided dispatch system that we use, and that system talks to not only the police department, but the fire department and the uh, ambulance services as well. So we're working to upgrade that system now, and that is a quite a lengthy process. Dispatchers are still kind of like those unsung heroes. You rarely think about them when you think about police and fire, so if you just had to describe uh, the team here, how would you do so? We are in a an environment where you you don't get up and move around a lot. You know, you really have to be there at your console ready to work. So that can be stressful to be in a smaller space with six, seven, eight other people. But any time there is an event, they always come together and they work very well when there is a, you know, a Peoria has a lot of crime. We, we do, and they work very well when we get the, whether it's the, the shooting or the fire or something like that, they all work cohesively very well. Do you want to talk a little bit about the medical background that they have to have? Yeah, absolutely. So, again, you don't have to have that when you come here. What we do is we um, send you to get a certification through emergency medical dispatch companies. Priority Dispatch, they're actually a uh, worldwide leader um, in emergency medical dispatch procedures. So um, we send them to, it's a five-day training, and then they do another day on top of that to train on the system that we have, which is all automated. Um, used to be on, like, a card system and on paper, and now it's all integrated into the system where they ask certain questions, and uh, sometimes that can be frustrating for the citizens. We, it, it does seem like they have to ask a lot of questions, but they do in order to get the information that the first responders need to get there as quickly as they can and as safely as they can. Peoria Emergency Communication Center Director Brandon Blaney. We also got the chance to talk with one of the dispatchers. Demarius Reddick has been with the department for five years and says he thought he knew what he'd be getting into when he took the job and came back home to Peoria. I originally dispatched for an ambulance company down in St. Louis, and when we relocated back to Peoria with my family, I saw there was an opening, thought it was similar. It's completely different, but it's definitely something fun to do. How long did it take you to figure out that it was completely different? Day one. Yeah. Day one. So, yeah, it's just a completely different ball game. The ambulance company was more so inter-facility transfers. This is actual life or death emergencies and other things of that nature, too, as well. So I initially started on, like, third shift, um, but now I've gravitated more towards second shift because it's busier, makes the day go by a little bit faster. Most of the calls that we get are wind up being calls for service. Um, I'd say a good 90% of the calls are dispatchable calls. There's, there's rarely a chance where it's not really a call that needs to be dispatched. So I was fortunate enough, uh, my initial training was with Brandon when he was a supervisor here starting, and it was four weeks of training and 
all I remember from the training was like after the second day, he's like, all right, you're taking the calls. And it's just like the sheer, you know, shock and you, you wind up, you know, getting your feet wet and getting into it. And it's easier as you do it rather than observing. But it is something that kind of like catches you off guard, your initial first call. Yeah. So baptism by fire is kind of the way you have to learn. 100% baptism by fire. I just mentally prepare myself. I, I tell myself, you know, it's the worst day for whoever's coming on that side of the phone, whether it's a stub toe or it's an actual emergency. It's their worst day, and so you have to take that into consideration. As they're frantic on the other side of the phone, you have to be that calming voice for them and help center them on we're getting you the help you need just give us the information we need to make sure we have the right response coming to you that's one of the most important things the the main thing we really focus on is just making sure we know where the emergency is and address is the crucial thing if you don't know where it's at you can't send any help where would you say given all that where you are now as a dispatcher versus five years ago when you started? Um, I am definitely probably not as patient as I was, um, but there is some patience and you have to have patience with people. But I, I've learned more so the area. I can narrow, pinpoint a lot of times where people are more fluent with, you know, lingo, you know, things people say, because you'd be surprised what people call things and you have to know right off the top of the head what they're talking about even if they're not sure what they're talking about. One of the things we were talking about with them earlier was that, or I was curious as to how you deal with people that are calling and asking for help but don't want to give you a lot of that information. I guess it's you know, like from the old days of 911 where you just, you call, you hope you tell them where you are and they hope somebody shows up. How is how do you how do you deal with some of those things and maybe some of those difficulties with with callers? So one of the things that I've learned is you have to ask the right questions, um, even if they're not forthcoming with a lot of information. If you ask the right questions in a certain way, you can get a lot more information. One of the funny things I deal with all the time is you ask someone for their address and they'll just say Peoria, and then you say, okay, we're at in Peoria. They'll say my house. And you just have to narrow it down and just badger them as much as they want to badger you. And like I said, most people will give you more information if you ask the right questions in the right way. How much has that technology, I guess, maybe helped make some of that easier when you get a call? So when I first started, the mapping system we had was really just like a blank map with street lines on it. You didn't know if it was a house, a field. Uh, water so it was just like a blank area so if a phone was hitting there you would tell the responders yeah, it's hitting somewhere between these two streets I don't know if it's a house I don't know if it's a field I don't know if it's a cow and so uh, now we have it where we have satellite image overlay on there and so you can really narrow it down to like it's the greenhouse about three houses down on the street and so it does tremendously help with those responses every question we ask is critical even if it seems like a meaningless question to you, it's a reason we ask the questions. Again, we're trying to pr protect you as well as the first responders responding. So if we're asking, you know, if they have weapons or if there's a description, it's all for a reason. And every question just deserves a good, accurate answer. Be prepared. Uh, it's hard to say what to prepare for because you get everything. But just be patient. You know, knowing your surrounding is critical and in this kind of line of work and just you gotta love working with people that don't love working with you peoria dispatcher demarius reddick more week in review coming up some pieces of tazewell county history long thought to be lost 
have finally been found. Civil War artifacts taken from the county decades ago ended up being found not too far away. WMBD's T.J. Carson talked with Tazewell County Clerk John Ackerman. For the last uh, several decades, um, there been a lot of rumor and speculation about uh, some artifacts that were stolen out of the Tazewell County Courthouse, um, uh, Civil War artifacts. Um, been a lot of um, into-window about it. A lot of people knew about it but didn't know what had happened to them, who had taken them, where they had gone. Um, and really just what all was involved with it, what was the collection. Um, what was known for fact is that between 1916 and 1968, there had been a historic hall, a museum, you could say, set up inside the Tazewell County Courthouse that held all of the Civil War artifacts from Civil War veterans uh, from Tazewell County. Um, the, the Civil War, there was other artifacts as well, but the Civil War artifacts was really the mainstay of this collection. Um, in 1968, to make room for a new courtroom, the historic hall was closed and was placed in the basement in storage. Um, the county clerk at the time was ordered by the county board to uh, put the artifacts, uh, categorize them, put them, uh, inventory them, put them, uh, package them properly, and store them in a bonded warehouse. Um, from what we can tell, that never took place. Um, and then from there, that's where it gets a little sketchier. Um, from what we to put together in the late 70s, somebody showed up and um, with some identification and took the items out of the courthouse. Um, we don't know who that individual was, just that it had taken place. Um, and sometime shortly thereafter, they were delivered, uh, we now know that they were delivered to the Grand Army of the Republic Museum in Springfield, Illinois. Um, in 1983, the county board wanted to know what happened to these, these items. Um, they asked the sheriff at the time to launch an investigation, and they opened one into who stole them and where they went. Um, that investigation um, took down some testimony and, and further um, evidence, but never really could find out where they were at. Uh, we became intrigued with it uh, about a month ago when the Tazewell County Historical Society, uh, Genealogical and Historical Society, and when the Pekin uh, Library's History Department both released uh, updated information about the old Tazewell County uh, uh, Historic Hall and, and what it was like uh, at the courthouse at that time. Um, and both of them really kind of raised the question of what happened to these items. And I'll admit I was a bit embarrassed that um, the county clerk was charged with putting these, uh, filing these, and that they had not been maintained, uh, that they had been stolen from us. Um, so we started just blindly calling museums, hoping for a uh, strike of luck that, you know, uh, we could find out where these had gone, and we actually came across a gentleman that had the inventory list of uh, what had been delivered in 1979, and then later on we came across a, a list was delivered to us, which is the Ascension list, uh, which shows the chain of ownership and identifying markers of all these items in the Gar Museum in Springfield, Illinois. Um, so with that information now firmly in our possession, we approached the Grand Army of the Republic Museum and um, asked them if they had these items, if they were aware of this, which they were. Um, they didn't know that they were taken from our, uh, without permission from our county, um, and asked that they return them. Um, it really is a stroke of luck because that museum closed the 31st of March, um, just literally a week before we, uh, we called is when they closed. If we had waited um, any longer, we would 
not have been able to get a hold of anybody from that museum and would never have been able to relocate these items because they were uh, they were bound to be shipped out to museums throughout the nation. Um, so it would have been hard to put the collection back together. Um, we have a commitment from them that they'll be returned to our county. Um, now that they have the Ascension list with the detailed inventory of every item, and we'll be able to uh, bring that collection home. From this list that you provided of what these items are, it kind of looks like it wasn't too easy to take these items out to steal them. Uh, is that my understanding? Yeah, I mean, and it's something that from the testimony we have from employees that were around back then, it happened in broad daylight that somebody had some identification and a maintenance employee opened the room up and allowed the individual who seemed to know what he was doing to take the items out. So, yeah, no, it's not anything that could be moved, you know, quickly grabbing off a shelf and walking out the door. It was quite a, a lot to load. Um, the sheriff is already assigned of he's going to send a cargo van with some deputies down because of the amount of material. So it's not something we can just put into a squad car and bring home. Um, we're going to have to have a cargo van to go down and pick all this material up and bring it back. So we this also was, want that protection because of firearms being involved and other types of weapons, too. Okay. So these were basically taken in broad daylight by someone that seemingly was a trusted person. Yeah, and like I said, for the last 50 years, it's been a mystery of what happened. We now have solved that mystery, at least of knowing where they went and being able to reclaim them and bring them back. I, I think if you're looking for a positive side on this story, it, at least the items weren't taken. Um, they were taken from the basement, which isn't a good spot to store these items anyhow. It wasn't um, ideal. The board knew that when they put them there. It was supposed to be just temporary storage. Um, the individual took them out of there and at least put them with a reputable museum that has uh, a history of being able to maintain materials from that time frame. Um, so they've been preserved perfectly uh, the way they should have been all this time. Um, they, you know, it, the worst case scenario would have been they were sold on the black market or uh, distributed to private collections where we never would have been able to get them from. So at least the whoever stole them from the courthouse did the right thing by handing them over to a reputable uh, museum that could properly store and display them. Um, that gives us the chance now to correct that injustice uh, by bringing them back and having them placed on proper display here within our county. Now, you said it was a stroke of luck that these were found, but was there like an inkling or a clue that you guys might have... Um had that could have led you into this direction to find out that these artifacts were down at uh, the GAR in Springfield? Nope. We just blindly picked up the phone and started calling state museums, asking to talk and work with the curators. And during that outreach, um, the list was supplied to us, the first list, and then the second list was supplied to us, um, at which point then we could approach the GAR Museum with evidence that these items were ours and, and um, request their return. Uh, without the, especially without the Ascension list uh, that has the serial numbers of the firearms, a very detailed description of all the items, including um, markings and uh, engravings on them and stuff that, you know, I positively identify that piece as being the item being described. Um, without that, we we wouldn't have had chain of custody of these items. Um, it really, it really was a stroke of luck that we received these two lists. 
What are some of the more notable and unique items uh, that you'll be getting back uh, that, or that will be returned to you? Yeah, there's several. Um, it, it, what's nice about it is that some, a lot of these items have their full history attached with them. So it isn't just an artifact from the Civil War, but it's an artifact attached to an individual unit from the Civil War or from an uh, individual battlefield so that you have some... Um, personalized um, lineage attached to it. Let me give you an example. Artifact, built with cap box and bayonet saber. And then the label is, found on the battlefield of Shiloh, and that it had been worn by a soldier of the 17th Louisiana Infantry, known as the Louisiana Tigers. That's You're being able to identify it down to the exact unit that that piece was uh, carried by. Um, a cavalry saber, uh, brass, uh, you know, then you get here, uh, cavalry saber used by a member of Warden's Confederate Texas Rangers. It was plowed up by Mr. Thomas 20 years after the Battle of Shiloh, three-fourths of a mile northeast of Shiloh Church. Again, one of the bloodiest battles of the Civil War, we're being able to bring that piece right to that area. Tazewell County Clerk John Ackerman. More Week in Review coming up. 25 years ago Monday, Pekin native and astronaut Scott Altman got the ride of a lifetime. It was his first trip into space. He talked about his memories of that flight with WMBD's Greg Batten and Dan DiOrio. We actually were planned to launch on Thursday, April 16th. Uh, when I got up that morning to get ready to get suited up to go out to the pad, we said, well, we discovered a problem with one of our communication systems that the primary system wasn't working, so we're going to change that out, and it delayed us a day. Uh, so we slipped one day. I never actually went out to the vehicle. Okay, so we didn't, we didn't get that. It wasn't one of those deals where there was like 30 minutes ago and they scrubbed. It was the day before. Okay. What were you, yeah. what were you thinking uh, that morning, the, the morning of the actual launch, or I guess the, the day you thought you were going to go? What goes through your mind? Is it just a checklist of things? Well, it's an exciting time, I mean, especially on my first launch. You, know, you think you know what everything's going to be, but when it's the real deal, uh, some things are just a little different. There's a little bit of uh, nervousness. You know, are we ready? But also confidence that I thought we were. Uh, the team was well-trained. And then just a lot of excitement. I mean, I, I tell people when I got suited up finally to go launch and you come down the stairs to go out, it felt to me like coming down Christmas morning. And, you know, I don't know what I'm going to get, but this is going to be great. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, I don't know what I'm going to get. Uh, do you simulate all of that? Uh, I mean, how much uh, do you do of that before you're s- seated? I mean, are you? I, I don't yeah. know how that all works. So back in, in Houston, they have a motion-based simulator that uh, before you fly for the first time, you think, wow, this must be just what it's going to be like. Because it tilts you back so you're pointed uh, in the vertical, sitting there on your back. And when you launch, it shakes a little bit and tips forward when you hit uh, main engine cutoff and go to zero G and you kind of feel that floating in your stomach. But when you get in the real vehicle and the main engines really start up and the vehicle starts shaking a little bit, you're like, wow, this is a little different than the simulator. And when the solid rocket boosters light off and the whole vehicle is really rocking and rolling and you're getting thrown into space, like, wow, we are not in the simulator anymore. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. That is funny. 
so yeah, and so when you experience all of that, uh, w- at what point through the sequence of liftoff do you actually somewhat relax and think, okay, now we're kind of in, I won't say standby, but we're in in a mode of stability now? Because that first sequence or second sequence of launching off is is probably just uh i wouldn't say traumatic but just crazy on your body and your mind at what point do you get where you kind of stabilize a bit well i would say back when we landed (laughs) 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 but uh i mean uh, in some ways the system is automated and you're kind of along for the ride but you're always worried about what the next worst thing might happen and what we would have to do to take over uh, on my last flight, we actually had a master alarm right at liftoff that we had to deal with. So, uh, uh, yeah, you're kind of on the edge of your seat, I think, just worrying about, okay, what could go wrong now? I, want, I don't want to jump ahead, but I do want to jump ahead to after you, because you mentioned after you land. What is the compression or decompression feeling? I don't even mean physically. I mean mentally. Of All right, I'm, I'm back. I'm home even. Is is there a is there a bit of a letdown? Well, it's uh, yeah, it's back to the real world, I guess. Uh, you know, space is great. You're doing uh, great things up there. Uh, you feel pumped up. Then uh, you land, and your neurovestibular system is like, "Whoa, this is weird." Gravity's back, and that's hard to deal with. But then. Uh, I get home and I tell people, well, my wife kept me grounded. She said, okay, great. You went to space. Now take out the trash. Yeah, I was wondering that. I was wondering, hey, could you go get some soda from the store? All of a sudden, (laughs) you're strapping into your car. It's not the same. Hey, what was the the mission on uh, the first flight? So it was called NeuroLab. We actually did experiments on uh, each other and a bunch of organisms, animals that we took with us to see how the brain and your neurological system responds to zero-G, that change. And it was kind of a nature versus nurture thing. We took uh, mice that learned how to walk in space to see if it was programmed in or did you learn in response to your environment. Uh, I was in charge of the most organisms of anybody, 1,500 crickets that oh were goodness. growing. Because crickets have a little sensor on the side of their legs, kind of like a little mini baseball bat that always tells them where down is because gravity, uh, you know, affects it. And so they said, okay, if I have a baby cricket, will it grow the same sensor uh, because it's programmed in or not? And what did we find out? Well, kind of a mix. I mean, they grew the sensors, but they were dwarfed. Uh, They weren't as fully functional as what uh, you would have on the ground. So... It's a little bit of both, programmed in, but needs the environment to really make it work. You, you have a, that, kind of funny. They they walk differently for the rest of their lives because they learn to walk in space. That is wild. Also, a lot of pressure on you to not drop the jar of crickets yes. in the uh, in the vehicle. There, that would have been you would have never lived that down. Does, no, it, be bad. <laughs> does it change your perspective? I mean, you train for it. You mentally know that you're going to go in space. But when you're up there and you're looking back down at Earth, when you get back down to Earth, does it change your perspective of things? No, I, that's a great point because I agree. That's probably the most uh, meaningful thing that happened for me, just that sense of the Earth as a planet, looking back at it and uh, looking at the horizon line. 
the world still looks pretty big from up there. You know, you're not looking back at a little ball. But when you look at the horizon line, there's this really narrow blue band going along the Earth. And I realized that's the atmosphere. It just makes it look so thin and fragile. I'm like, wow, you know, we got to take care of this place. There's not that much there protecting us from space, radiation, oxygen to breathe and live. So that was STS-90, and then you did three more missions after that. You were pilot on two and commander on two. Um, is there any, uh, I, I mean this question with all the respect in the world, you and I are the same age, and I don't consider us old, but as an astronaut, as an astronaut, you're on the older side. Obviously, 25 years ago was your first mission. Uh, is there thoughts of older astronauts going to space just to see what happens? Well, that was the whole point of the John Glenn mission that well, we yeah. on the shuttle a while back. Yeah, I forgot um, about him. And uh, there's actually uh, a benefit of flying older astronauts uh, on long-duration spaceflight missions, because one of the concerns you have is your exposure to radiation is much greater uh, when you're on orbit or in transit, like on your way to Mars, which is a four- to six-month trip. Right. And the advantage us older folks have is that uh, I can take an exposure to radiation and it's not going to have as big an impact on my life because uh, you have to live long enough for that stuff to have consequences. Wow, that's interesting. So when we go to Mars and start doing more of that, uh, and I know we're already in the process of getting that way or getting down that road, um, will we use older astronauts? Well... I'll be campaigning for that, but I'm not sure. (laughs) Would you go? Would you do it? I always wanted to go to Mars. I thought I would be one of the first people on Mars when I first joined NASA. But then that just has taken longer than we thought at the time. And so now uh, I was just uh, at Goddard Space Flight Center yesterday talking to a bunch of young kids. And now I'm hoping that one of those kids I talked to is the first person on Mars who goes, yeah, I remember when Scooter talked to me and got me all motivated, oh, now we're on Mars. So That's cool. I'm going to yeah. Mars one way or the other. Is there any That's talk, good. though, yeah. within the household that go, Mars is a little far, maybe the moon, <laughs> but we're drawing the line at Mars. Yeah. yeah, your wife must be a saint. Oh, my goodness. Hey, real quick, Scott Altman. <laughs> Scott Altman, real quick, uh, uh, remind everybody what you're doing currently these days. What are you up to? So when NASA retired the space shuttle, I didn't have a ride to orbit anymore because I don't fit on the Soyuz. I'm too big. Uh, So I left NASA and joined ASRC Federal, and now we still do work on the Artemis vehicle. Uh, My company supplies techs who are assembling Orion. I uh, was down in Florida on Tuesday for an award ceremony from NASA for the work that we did in support of Orion. That does it for this edition of Week in Review. Join us at this time next week on this Midwest Communications Station for another recap of some of the biggest issues and events in central Illinois. I'm Will Stevenson, WMBD News.